We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game odds on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start. Start winning. Hello. We're on to Cincinnati. You play to win the game. It was all that Dan Marino's fault. Everyone knows that. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Rockpile Report, AFC East Roundup, hosted by Bill's season ticket holder, Drew Gear, a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the AFC East Roundup Podcast. I'm your host, Bill's season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Kruger. And to quote Aerosmith, I'm back in the saddle again. I'm back. Woo! <laughs> As we take a look at the standings around the AFCs, the Buffalo Bills, in impressive fashion, pried the AFC East lead back out of the cold, wrinkly hands of the devil himself. And by that, I mean Bill Belichick. And in the process, are now firmly in control of their own destiny as we head towards the 2021 postseason. New England, in losing their second straight game, the Patriots found out that there was a stark contrast between having a Rookie of the Year candidate playing quarterback and a former MVP candidate, especially when one of them shows up with a chip on his shoulder. Miami, the Dolphins dominated a COVID-riddled Saints team to keep their almost Major League-esque heater alive and are shockingly now holding on to one of seven AFC playoff spots. And they've got the New York Jets. The Jets established themselves as not one of the worst teams in the NFL after all, pulling off a win while being ravaged by COVID and missing their head coach. And here to talk to us about it tonight, Mr. Scott Mason of Play Like a Jet. How are you, sir? Well, I have to correct you, Drew. The Jets definitely are one of the worst teams in the league. They just happen to be a little less bad than the Jacksonville Jaguars, which I guess is something. 
Uh, I'm glad to be talking to you guys and taking a break from battling people on Twitter about the insanity of the Jets, the idea of the Jets using the number six pick that they got from the Seahawks for a wide receiver, which is insane on 7,000 different <laughs> levels. And Drew, you're a charts yeah. guy, so I'm oh. sure you could draw this out and make a concrete case. Hey, I'm the guy who watched uh, my this, team this, trade this, up this for is Sammy. A, a much more sane place to be, which I'm sure a lot of... Bills fans can't believe. If you ever need me to come onto your show and describe my life as a, a fan of the team that traded up for Sammy Watkins and what that did to our franchise <laughs> in that draft, I would be more than happy to do it. If Jets fans need to hear it, I'm here for you, brother. <laughs> I may need you to jump in on Twitter, actually. <laughs> here we go. As we were getting ready to record this, it dropped that John Madden died. Um, I'd like to raise a glass to the man. I think that um, I think it's noteworthy. John Madden, just one of the. I don't know. He's been a mainstay of football since I was a kid. In the booth. In the booth. Yes. Had his own video game. Just coach. The the sound of his voice. Like they've taken it out of the game, right? Like it's no longer there. But the old Madden games had him doing commentary. I'll never forget that. Well, and also, Frank Caliendo basically made a career off of impersonating him. So, <laughs> I mean, really, in a perfect world, we could probably just pull in Frank Caliendo and pretend it never happened. Yeah, you know what? In my head, John Madden's still alive, and Frank Caliendo is is actually like the replacement John Madden. It's like that theory about how Paul McCartney actually died, but they replaced him with a fake Paul McCartney. I'm. I mean, I'm just. I'm just looking at this and I'm looking at his coaching record and just I'm sure the Raiders fan base right now is I'm sure you guys are hurting because that that would be like Chris if and when Marv Levy I know he's still alive because I saw him just a year or two so ago yeah. at a signing event but I think that it's it's gonna hurt because he was the most prolific coach you guys had and it's it's just a rough one. It's just a rough one to watch go because yep. he was, an, again, a legend. Just a legend to the game of football. He loved football, and he loved the goofiness of it. He liked yeah. some of the weird oddities of the game of football, and it bothered a lot of people. Yeah. It bothered a lot of people. It bugged a lot of people that he worked with. It bugged a lot of people that he coached with, you know, the people he broadcasted with. But he was a draw for so many people, and there's so many instances that I guess are just cemented in our minds that John Madden's a part of. When you think about some of your favorite football moments, he's there. He's a part of that. So listen, man, if you were a football fan in the seventies, eighties, nineties, whatever, John Madden was a huge part of your life. If you love football, because like you said, he was a coach. So you saw him in that aspect. Then he shifted to the booth. So you saw him, he was the, him and uh, Pat Summerall were the, announced team for a really long time and then you had John Madden football which was the football video game for many of us when we were younger and then obviously toward the very end it was him and Al Michaels and then you know he kind of I guess a few years ago you know rode off into the sunset but we all had fond memories of him and like I said to you before we started recording John Madden passed away at 85 years old, and man, he made every one of those 85 years count. That dude lived a life. <sighs> he did. I, I mean, I have a book about him and some of the stuff. Folks, I urge you, 
just go read up on John Madden so you know why I'm uh, there's just a kind of I don't know I don't I don't even know how to say what I'm feeling right now it's just go read up on it so that you know what I'm thinking right now and you can see the loss for what it is and also raise a glass with me to the man cheers so we're talking about the New York Jets. Taking my bottle of water with you, Drew. <laughs> I appreciate it, sir. Solidarity, even in the solidarity, even from those of you who are teetotaling right now. So the Jets and the Jaguars. You guys win this game, and I think it's it, people would go, "Oh, it's one, it's one shitty football team beating another shitty football team." But this is bigger than that because what it is is it's a team wrecked by COVID. Your coach isn't even on the sidelines. Every single excuse was out there for you guys to lose this football game. And instead, you found a way to take it. And Zach Wilson, and we always talk about how Zach Wilson is, he's the storyline for 2021 for you, right? Like, that's the reason every Jets fan's paying attention mm-hmm. at this point. On a short staff roster, engineered what I would call a 2018 Josh Allen win. 273 yards, no turnovers, and a 52-yard rushing score. Chris, I almost didn't believe you when you told me. You were like, oh, Josh Allen, uh, Zach Wilson just ran 52 yards for a touchdown. I like, what the hell? What are you talking about? <laughs> that has to be encouraging for his development, correct? Yeah, I just wish, and I got a lot of pushback for this, that everything that you just said would have been exactly the way it played out, except at the end, Trevor Lawrence would have gotten it in the end zone and the Jaguars would have won. Because at this point, that would have put the Jets from number four to number two and given them an inside track on either Kayvon Thibodeau or Aiden Hutchinson. I don't really think the win does them a lot of good. But what does do them a lot of good is what you said, that Zach Wilson played very, very well. You look at the box score, he threw for 102 yards. And he ran for 91. So you look at the 102 yards passing, you're like, oh, he didn't really do much. But it wasn't so much the the box score numbers. It was, if you watched, he made much better decisions. He was processing faster. He made some really nice throws. In fact, there were a couple that were really bad drops. Denzel Mims, who I don't know what happened to him. Something's going on there. He dropped a touchdown in the end zone. Uh, you, you had Jeff Smith catching what should have been an easy first down for him. So Wilson looked much more comfortable, much more decisive. He used, as you alluded to, he used his legs to bail himself out. That 52-yard run was a franchise record for the quarterback. And that's really what you wanted out of this game because if you looked at it, realistically there are only three guys on this team that have a long-term future as a legitimate starter, most likely, that played in that game. And those three guys are Zach Wilson, Michael Carter, and Bryce Hall. And all three played pretty well, especially Carter and Wilson. Michael Carter had 118 yards rushing. He had a huge day. In fact, overall, the Jets had got 175 yards rushing from the running backs because Tevin Coleman, who has played surprisingly well when given carries this year, had a really nice day, too. So, it was nice to see the offense be able to move the ball, but really more than anything, it was great that the two guys that were in this game that the offense are gonna ha- is going to have to rely upon, at least in large part, as key weapons going forward for the next few years. Michael Carter and Zach Wilson both look very good, and they, they're both progressing. Wilson has made some real strides the last couple of weeks. He's not anywhere close to where you want him to be because, as you said, he's more... 
in that like Josh Allen early stage where you see the flashes, you see the possibilities, you see games where he looks good, but he's not quite at that spot where you're confident. I saw somebody did a poll on this. Do you think it has Zach Wilson shown you enough to, for you to think that he's the man? And it was like 52, 48. Yes. Which to me is crazy. I like Zach Wilson a lot. I was all in on drafting him at number two. I still believe in him, but you can't possibly have seen enough at this point to say confidently that he's the man. But you definitely feel much better about it after the last couple of weeks than you did before that. So that's trending upwards. That's a positive. The negative, of course, is like I said, the Jets now are at number four. There's no way to get to number two. I think the highest they could get is number three if the Texans do them a favor and knock somebody off. And then obviously the Jets would have to lose out to you guys the last week of the season, which I'm sure you'd like to see. And then their old friend Tom Brady in Tampa Bay this coming Sunday, they could get to number three. But I just hope this isn't another situation where the Jets have a history of winning games at the end of seasons that cost them players that they really could have used. The worst example, and Drew, you'll appreciate this because you're a petty man and you enjoy basking in others' misery. In 2007, the Jets won a Week 17 game against the Kansas City Chiefs. That dropped them in the draft order from number three to number six. At number three, they would have drafted Matt Ryan. Instead, they drafted Vernon Golston at number six. So that is about as big of a double kick in the balls as you can possibly get in terms of dropping in the draft and, and the resulting effect. I hope it doesn't wind up like that. But as you said, it, and as others have said, if they were going to win, Coming out of this feeling better about Zach Wilson, you feel much better about it than if they had, say, gutted out a win where Wilson didn't look very good. No, for sure. So with the Jets' decision-making, you know, kind of happening on the sidelines sans your head coach, who was calling the shots and what do you think of the job that overall this staff did without their leader? I actually really liked what Ron Middleton did. I mean, look, sometimes he made some weird calls, like instead of kicking a field goal, they went for a fake field goal and he got stuffed. Uh, there, there were a couple of times where he got a little over-aggressive, but Ron Middleton got very aggressive. He went for on fourth down several times, uh, really showed me something. I'll be honest, he's the tight ends coach. I didn't know a lot about him until the announcement came that Robert Sala was not going to be able to coach in this game. So I read up on him and again, you know, you don't really know much, but he seemed like a fun character just from what he would say during the week. And also he's got a really cool beard, which I'm always a fan (laughs) of. So I was curious to see how this dude would do. And and honestly, I really liked it. Well, the reason I guy that's going to get like head coaching consideration from some other team. No, probably not, but probably not. But here, well, here's the reason I'm asking this is because for years, your coaching staff has been what we'll call beleaguered. <laughs> There's probably, I mean, the Adam Gase era, there was no leaders, there was no structure, and everything fell apart with that head coach on the sideline. Todd Bowles. Todd Bowles was there, and the team was milk toast without him. They lo- they won games, but they lost games. There was just a lot of, okay, our head coach is the guy, and he's here. This is the first time I've seen a Jets team where they're like, okay, the guy who's the guy who is, you know, you, you, it's funny because there's a listener of ours over in Sweden and he's referred to guys various between players and coaches as culture carriers. He said they talk about it in soccer a lot in European football clubs. You have guys who are there. Who, Sounds like the name of a Swedish rock band, the culture carriers. So the whole idea is that 
There's a guy who de- who creates and develops the culture. There's guys who carry said culture. And every franchise that's successful in any sport needs to have those guys. The problem with the Jets is that, A, they've never known what their culture is going to be, and B, there's been nobody to pick up the mantle when that guy leaves. Your head coach skips out, somebody fills in for him, and it seems like the team thrives because, it, hey, listen, we're going up against another underwhelming opponent, kind of like us. They're in the same spot we are. But at the same time, I think that Robert Sella essentially, this is what I love, you're dealing with an interim coaching staff on that sideline, an interim coaching staff on the Jets sideline, and you guys did an, a better job of out-coaching them. For the first time in what I think might be Jets franchise history, the depth of your no, coaching staff. No, 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 staff, since, uh, since Cotite. The depth of your coaching staff was tested. <laughs> and up against another t- franchise's depth of coaching staff, you guys came out came out on the positive side. I think that's incredibly impressive. Now, with a couple weeks left, what do you think is left for the team to figure out? I mean, I've got a couple things I, I want to ask you. Is there a decision coming on C.J. Mosley anywhere any, anywhere here soon? I mean, he's on a, he, he had a great game, right? Ten tackles, a sack, a forced fumble. C.J. Mosley on Sunday looked like the guy he was supposed to be when you guys signed him in free agency a couple years ago. But is it too little too late? I mean, there's just a lot of... I feel like at this point in the season, you're looking at the roster going, who's going to be here and who's not? Who are some of the guys that you could see Mm -hmm. the team making a decision on here over the next few weeks? Well, I think Mosley will stick around mostly because the way his contract is structured, because he opted out last year, that money, uh, he got like $10 million in guarantees, and then the contract rolled over. So I think he's got one more expensive year left where if the Jets cut him or traded him, it would basically cost him about the same as if he was here. So I think he'll probably be here next year. After that, probably not, unless he's willing to take a lot less money. I think Ryan Griffin, the tight end, who just got hurt and is out for the year, he's probably a goner. Uh, Connor McGovern may have done enough to save his job, depending on what the Jets do in the offseason, but it's possible they'll ha- they'll restructure him. I'm curious to see what's going to happen with Morgan Moses, who's going to be an impending free agent. George Stant played pretty well this year. He's due, I think, 8 or $9 million, which normally would be a lot to pay a swing tackle, but he could stick around and start, or he could be expensive insurance for Mekhi Becton again next year. Uh, as far as the rest of the guys, that they're going to have to make decisions on. I'm tr- I mean, there are a couple of guys that are free agents that they're certainly going to have to think about. Braxton Berrios is at the top of everyone's list. I'm not as high on him. There are a lot of people, and, and I think this is partly because Jets fans have had such a rough go of things for a long time that they get attached to these guys that really wouldn't be anything special on another team. Like, Berrios is a nice like fourth or fifth receiver, a good gadget guy, and a really good return man, and, and he's nice to have. But I saw like Rich Semini from ESPN tweeting out he should be a top priority in the offseason. And to me, that's way too much of an overstatement. So I would like to see him back, and I'm sure they'll try to bring him back. Marcus May, I don't know what they're going to do with him. He's going to be 30 years old. We know he had that off-the-field stuff. He's coming off a major injury. Are they going to want to pay him? Is he going to get any real offers now like he, he thought that he was going to? Does he end up staying for a lot less money? I don't know. They're going to have to make a decision there. So, so there's a lot of interesting things for them to figure out. Foley Patakasi, who's a really good run defender, do they want to pay him? 
or do they just trust that they have enough on that interior defensive line? Remember, they do have Quentin Williams. They just, they just pay John Franklin Myers. They've got Kyle Phillips. They've got Sheldon Rankins here for another year. So they've got some guys there. So those are, those are the main areas where I think there's going to have to be decisions made. The one thing is the Jets are, by and large, a very young team. So there aren't a ton of guys that I think that they either have to resign internally or that would be a big deal for them to move on from. Because if you look at who is playing a lot of the year, I mean, Bryce Hall and Brandon Eccles are both on rookie contracts, for example. They're two cornerbacks, and they they don't have any safeties on their contract right now. And the only linebacker that they have for sure is C.J. Mosley. Quinn Williams' brother is here, so maybe he sticks around, but I don't think he's a contract they have to worry about. And then you look on the offensive side of the ball, and like I said, maybe they restructure McGovern. I'm sure Greg Van Roten's gone, so I should add him to the pile. But but the one benefit of not having a lot of guys that are making you know much money on veteran contracts is that there's not a lot of tough decisions to make as far as who to retain. You can kind of figure it out pretty easily and then proceed accordingly in free agency in the draft. Now it's you guys are in a uh, a surprising position, but down the stretch, I feel like as you play some more of these underwhelming football teams, you're getting some sparks of life here. I think for Jets fans, that's really what you can ask for. Now, it doesn't look good. <laughs> what is it? You guys are thirteen point underdogs this week. Right. Uh, what do you well, do? You agree true, with the listen. spread again? What is it? Tampa Bay? Yeah, of course. Oh, oh. Of course I do. I mean, they're playing Tampa Bay. It's Tom Brady. They're they're one of the best teams in the league. I know they have injuries, but you know, the, the Jets squeaked by the Jaguars at home. I know there it was a weird game, but both teams are missing guys. Uh, it's hard to argue with a double-digit spread there. Uh, the, the main thing for me is I just want to see Zach Wilson play well the next two weeks. It's really all I'm looking for. If Elijah Moore comes back, which I'm not entirely sure he's going to, and it looks like Mekhi Becton's not going to play, then that would be cool to see him and Elijah Moore hook up a couple of times. But I just want to see Zach Wilson play well. In all likelihood, this will be the only time Zach Wilson ever plays Tom Brady. So if he can at least come close to holding his own in this game, that would be cool. I'm sure he would really love it from his own standpoint as well, being a guy who I'm sure grew up really idolizing Tom Brady among other quarterbacks. I know he loved Aaron Rodgers and all that. Uh, I'll be at the game. This will be my final opportunity in all likelihood, although Tom Brady could play till he's 65. We know that. But it's it's most likely that this will be the last time I get to see Brady in person because he's 44 and the Buccaneers wouldn't visit here for another eight years. So unless he plays in his 50s or I go on the road and watch him in Tampa or something – Odds are I'm not going to see him play again. I've seen him many times, as you know, as a member of the Patriots, but this will be my only shot to see him with the Bucks. And, look, I've, I've said this over the years. For as much as Tom Brady frustrated me early on in his run, as the run after the Jets collapsed, after the beginning of the Rex era and they got bad, and I didn't really worry that much about what the Jets were doing because by, like, week five every year they were toast. Uh, I really began to appreciate Brady for what he is. And it, it, look, for as much as is a Bills fan or a Jets fan or somebody who's a Dolphins fan like Alfar Tiaga, 
has to have been pulling their hair out over and over again over the years because of Tom Brady. We had the opportunity to watch the best football player of all time and the best head coach of all time together in their prime dominate the league for 20 years, and that's something we'll never see again, and that's the thing with Tom Brady. He's done this for over two decades. It's incredible, and no matter how much you have frustration about how much torture he put our respective teams through, there's something about watching him that you just got to tip your cap to because it's remarkable. We've never seen anything like it before. We probably never will again. I mean, Joe Montana, for as great as he was, didn't even do this for half as long as Tom Brady, which nope. is what separates him. He's still great, nope. even after all these years. So see, now that'll I, be interesting, and I just want to see Zach Wilson hold his own. Having having season tickets for over a decade, I, I agree with you. I'm sure someday I will look back and be able to tell my kids, I got to watch Tom Brady come in here and whip our ass in a million different ways, but it was always <laughs> Tom Brady driving the train. And I also got to see the day we beat him. And that day was worth more, like, the enjoyment I got out of that moment, knowing that, I guess what I'm trying to say is that that moment wouldn't have been as sweet if he wasn't so good. If Belichick wasn't so good, if that dynasty wasn't so good, then that win wouldn't be one of my top five memories of all time. If we go back to, over the course of my life at 36 years old, I can firmly, I'd say top ten. You know, obviously, the moment you propose, you get married, you have a baby. Us beating the Patriots at home with Brady and Belichick when they had a 21-point lead will be one of the top 10 favorite moments of my whole life. And to know that I was there in person and I can tell my yeah, kids well, about that, that wouldn't it wouldn't mean as much if he wasn't who he is. So I appreciate this. I can't wait to see how things shake out for you guys down the stretch here. Where can people find your work running up to Tampa Bay this week over a play like a jet? What do you got going on? Oh, we got lots going on, but I I will also say that similar thing. I don't know about top 10 in my life, but definitely as a sports fan and as a Jets fan, the memory of the Jets beating the Patriots in Foxborough in the 2010 season or 2011 in January in the AFC, uh, excuse me, in the AFC playoffs, I was going to say the AFC championship. Uh, That was one of, you know, if you're a Jets fan, that was one of the best moments in franchise history. So, and again, the only reason it was such a great moment is because Brady and Belichick were so, are so great. It's what made it so awesome to to watch. This week is going to be cool. We're, we're going to do some fun stuff because we're heading into the new year. So, Obviously, we did the post-game report after the Jaguars game, Andy Vasquez of NorthJersey.com, Brian Bassett and his friends, Travis Milton, who's a world-class chef, and Josh Conrad, the preacher man. Uh, they all they do their show, There's Always Next Year, and they did a fun game. You guys would appreciate it. Uh, they, they went through the, the guys that they thought did great on Sunday, the guys they didn't like, talked about Wilson and all that, but they also played a fun game where – they went through the roster and compared different players to 70s sitcom stars, which I thought was pretty cool, or 70s sitcom characters. So a little something different there. We got midweek news and notes with the very big deal, Chris Nimbley of JetsInsider.com. TJ Reeves, who is the Bucks sideline reporter, who is awesome. This dude is 12 pounds of personality in a six-pound bag. Uh, he and I are like, oh, this is the first time we'd ever chatted, and we – we're like old pals discussing Jets and Bucks history and talking about what the Buccaneers have done this year and all that stuff. So 
that's a lot of fun as we get an inside look at the Buccaneers heading into the matchup. We're going to talk about the Zach Wilson film, the Thunder from Down Under, Luke Grant. He'll, he'll have that, plus we'll have an All-22 breakdown on our YouTube channel. We'll, we'll do the pregame report with you know, the very big deal, Chris Nimbley, where, as always, we go through the last-minute news and injuries and try to make you a few bucks with the prop bets and the over-under and, uh, and the line, which, as of right now, as you said, is 13 points. And also, uh, we're going to try and do some fun content for New Year's Day. I think we might do some sort of countdown for best Jets moments of 2021, which, granted, (laughs) probably half of them are going to be stuff that didn't actually happen on the field, but that's a whole other story altogether. So check us out everywhere. Uh, We're on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. Apple, anywhere you can download podcasts. Like I said, we've got the Play Like a Jet YouTube channel. We've got the Play Like a Jet store at teepublic.com. It's teepublic.com. I'm at Play Like a Jet One on Twitter. And as always, we are coming at you like demolition, giving you that guillotine elbow drop back in the 80s when they were the best tag team in the WWF. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The heater continues in South Florida as the Miami Dolphins beat up on the COVID-riddled Saints. So what was that, 20-3? to 3. Here to talk to us about it, Mr. Alfartiaga. How are you tonight, sir? Spectacular. <laughs> I would not doubt it. Now, have you guys recorded your episode of Three Yards Per Carry yet this week in reaction to last night's game? Yeah, we, yeah, we did it for, for lunch. So, yes, oh. it's in the can already. Fantastic. So I can't wait to go. See, now, th- this is what I love, Chris, about having a, f- a, a division that's finally competitive, not just with each other, but with other NFL football teams, is that it's more fun to go listen to these guys' podcasts when I know I can go out there and they're going to be having interesting conversations about something that's relevant to me now. I mean, generally speaking, like last year, a lot of the stuff you were getting into was interesting because we were seemingly, hey, you know, 
you weren't going to catch us, but maybe there was a chance they'd make the playoffs. And then it all fell apart at the end. Now we're kind of on a similar trajectory, except it's completely unprecedented. (laughs) This is something that no one could have. If anybody said they saw this coming, they're liars. They're damn liars. How is the fan base reacting to, to waking up this morning, realizing that the Miami Dolphins are maybe one of the most inexplicable playoff teams ever? Uh, some of them are just flat out confused because <laughs> some of them remember where they were in September and they expected to be better than this at this point in the season. It's just that, you know, the season catches up with you, right? And circumstances are what they are. You didn't expect to lose two uh, seven snaps in versus the Buffalo Bills in week two and then have Jacoby Brissett come in and be an unmitigated disaster for five weeks. And then before you know it, you can't win a game. And then not only can you win a game, but then your coach is purposefully holding people out for whatever reason that he has. And it seemed to be like anybody who had any type of injury got benched for whatever reason. And then, of course, you know, your two corners got injured. They start playing the defense completely differently. And then all of a sudden, from one day to the next, they start playing like they did last year and they can't lose. It's it's been so, crazy. I guess to they're watch. satisfied. Yeah, they're they're kind of satisfied because of how a, how it started. But if they step back from it, they will realize they're probably two wins shy of where they probably wanted to be. So when you think about it in terms of that, you say, okay, preseason expectations to now. Yeah, you guys go out there and you do what you should do. I mean, you look at the score and you say, okay, they won 20 to three. My wife wanted to watch uh, (laughs) when the game was on. My wife wanted to catch up on the show Yellowstone. And she said, oh, but, you know, I I know that there's a football game on and it's important. And, you know, rather than watch that from the other night, we will, uh, you know, we'll we'll just I'll let you watch Monday Night Football. And I said, honey, that show, you know, sans commercials, since we'll fast forward through them, that show only takes up about 38 minutes maybe 40 and she goes okay well then you'll probably miss the first half i go honey i don't i it was almost like that moment in office space i don't think i'll be missing it and i turned the tv on just before halftime to see that it was 10 to 3 now i saw the pick six <laughs> i saw the pick six to start the game on the saints first possession to know that only six points got scored cumulatively between your two teams in that time frame it felt pretty good first of all that i could call one like I can call, I can still call one every now and again. Like I know that this is going to be offensively kind of a snooze fest because the Saints are still a pretty good defensive team despite all the injuries and the COVID stuff. And you guys kind of did what you should do with a quarterback like Ian Book. I, he, there's a reason that he wasn't on anybody's backup quarterback shortlist this offseason. And you, you did the thing. You know, if you, if you threw him in a dumpster, Oscar the Grouch would sue you for uh, toxic dumping and waste disposal, you know, improper stuff. He was bad. And at the same time, when I look at your offense, I can understand a little bit where the, you know, Skip Baylesses of the world come out and start throwing some cold water on this team and on the offense, even though they are in the playoffs. What do you think about the offense that you saw last night against what was probably one of the more competitive teams they've played on this win streak? Yeah, I would start by saying that Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady combined to score three whole points against this defense. Mm-hmm. Okay? 
So they're pretty good. And when you say, okay, a lot of guys are out, well, Warner stepped in for Davis, and Warner had a pretty damn good game, I thought. I thought that the only guy that they were really down was Quan Alexander because Malcolm Jenkins, what is Malcolm Jenkins now nowadays? He's pretty old, immobile, and probably would have helped us with Mike Kosecki, to be, to be completely honest. They still had uh, Gardner Johnson, who in my opinion is the best slot corner in football. Marshawn Lattimore, who absolutely erased Devontae Parker yesterday. And they have those two ends. Those two ends are our problem. And if we play them against our our two tackles who who returned right back to form yesterday. Well, you just kept and, on saying yeah, nice things can... about him, Elf. Obviously, you, you spent a week talking about how the offensive line had gotten better, so obviously they would turn into pumpkins just to piss you off. Yeah, they had a, a nice little two-and-a-half game streak, and then... Then they faced Cameron Jordan and they couldn't block him at all. Yeah. I saw. I saw. There was just no hope. I thought of you. I, 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 Chris, you know how I like to antagonize people during football games. Always. It took me a lot of self restraint not to DM you more. I think I reached out to you once when Tua took that shot. When he was, it's like you got a slide there, man. You try to throw the body around. He just got stonewalled. Just absolutely stoned in his tracks. And that's not a hit you want your quarterback taking, but luckily for him, he's he's bulked up a bit. And it came in handy because those DNs were all over him. I watched Jesse Davis throw the Olay block at least two or three times. <laughs> There's no way he's a part of this team's long-term future, right? I mean, even with the, the fact that you guys yeah. are on this win streak yeah. and that he's do, things seem like they're trending upwards, some of these guys aren't long for the Dolphins, correct? No, uh, they have no absolute. They have no shot whatsoever. Jesse Davis, absolutely not. Liam Eikenberg is probably going to be tried at another position, maybe even as a swing tackle, and you can afford that, especially since, you know, uh, he was a later pick, a later top one hundred pick. So, you know, you missed as far as a starter, maybe. Although, you know, there's still some upside there. You never know, and it could be coaching. A lot of people, a lot of people keep saying the same thing. Look, a lot of these guys were highly touted coming out. It's almost impossible that they're this bad. You know, it's, 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 it has to be some type of coaching. And if you believe Jimmy Johnson, if you believe certain people, they say that the offensive line is the only unit on the field where a coach is probably more important than the individual pieces. So I tend to believe some of that. But, yeah, I can't believe that these guys are that bad because they just are. It's, it's awful. And then it didn't help either that they caught a bunch of phantom holding calls yesterday, including one by Liam Eikenberg. Uh, Tua makes a big play to Jalen Waddle over the middle, which is kind of redundant because it seemed like that was the only guy that was playing yesterday for, for Miami. But he completes a big pass, crosses midfield. It looks like we're, you know, we're moving the ball with impunity with very little resistance. And then here comes a holding call. Then they show it. And it wasn't a holding call because Liam Eikenberg completely whiffed on his block and almost got two a killed. So, you know, I don't know how you can get holding when when you don't touch a guy at all. <laughs> well, that's that's what I'm, yeah. I'm looking at. I think that might be on one of the plays I'm talking about here. I just watched him completely blow his assignment. Chris, it was like the Shaq Barrett sack on Josh Allen a few weeks ago where Spencer Brown just never even touched Shaq Barrett. He just ran right past him. That's, that's what we're talking about here. When you talk about the offensive execution as a whole, that offensive line performance probably had a lot to do with the fact that, and again, I think this is where some of the punditry comes from, Tua was re- like downfield 
offense just wasn't there for you guys. I, there was the one big pass to Mac Hollins that I saw that I thought was just a great catch. And then outside of that, everything beyond 10 yards was a struggle. It it just was. I mean, you, you had a few shots, but nothing. Tua didn't have a lot of time to operate, so it was a lot of checkdowns, a lot of short stuff at or behind the line of scrimmage. And that, that'll, that'll work for a while. I mean, I think one of the more egregious drives is where you guys get the ball. There's a turnover. You guys have it at the 38-yard line for New Orleans. And you end up just kicking a field goal. And it's like, all right, well, this isn't a point in the game where you already have them on the ropes. There's probably already some quit in that team. Like, you should be able to put in points there. Would you agree with me that that's probably where some of this detraction from your offense and from Tua comes from? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they also, you know, you got to face it. They, you know, they packed it in pretty early in the fourth quarter. And the four, early in the fourth quarter, they decided, okay, we're just going to r- do this thing where we run, 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 punt. And it was it was basically right after Tua threw that interception, he gets the ball back and he drives him right down the field for a touchdown. And the next time he gets out there, he gets a drive started again. And they decided, you know what? Uh, this game's essentially over. We're up two touchdowns. They can't move it from here to there. And they literally couldn't because they got 135 total yards and they got 60 of them on the last drive of the game. Okay. So, so that tells you pretty much all you need to know. And by the way, all you need to know about dolphin fans is that they were upset that Baron Jones gave up that 40 yard catch at, on the last drive of the game when, when it was essentially over. So, you know, it's it's also philosophy as well. Brian Flores, you know, he, he loves his defense. He's going to cater to his defense. And, you know, if it's going to be to the detriment of the offense, so be it. That's the way he, he coaches. Chris, a coach that gets conservative on offense because he trusts his defense to kind of carry the load. I don't know anybody like that. Sounds familiar. I don't know anybody who's frustratingly like that. No, not me. Not at all. <laughs> but now, so I mean, it, it's I, I think bigger than the game itself because I mean, today there was all kinds of commentary coming out about how this game is the poster child for why the COVID rules need to change. And but, but it's like, okay, yeah, it was an unwatchable game. And if I wanted to be snarky, I'd say, well, that's because you put Miami and New Orleans on there. But I'm not going to do that because I like you. I like your team. <laughs> what I would say is. When you put two teams together whose strength is defense and you have two teams that have the flaws that they have on offense, that's the type of game you're going to get. That's just what this is. So kind of shame on the NFL for putting this on primetime and Monday Night Football or or shame on everybody else for watching. Okay, If you don't like it, that's your fault. You knew what this was going to be the same way I knew. I wasn't going to miss many fireworks if I missed the first half of the game. So... With all of that said, there is a moment of kind of this just feels like historical significance of this. I mean, we're talking about an AFC East that for the last couple of years it's been whoever wins the division gets the playoff bid. And then everybody else is pretty much either in the hunt, on the on the very cusp of the bubble, fighting for scraps. The AFC East now has three playoff teams, and one of them in the Miami Dolphins is probably one of the most improbable, I want to say, in history after the start you've had, is the historical significance of this moment kind of, you know, hopefully it's not lost on the team. Do you think your own fan base really appreciates that for what it is? 
Yeah, some of them are starting to come around to to how historic this this run is if they complete it. You know, and then you got to step back. You got to step back at the end of the season. And you got to say, look, you know, we got to fix the reasons why you started one and seven. The reason you started one and seven was your backup quarterback was bad, your offensive line was bad, and they fed off of each other. And then you had injuries on defense. Okay, so maybe you got to work a little bit on your depth, and then of course completely revamp the offensive line and get a better backup quarterback. And then maybe you can survive a, a small stretch where. Everything is not ideal. But, yeah, they got to figure it out already by now. Uh, they have two tough games to go. I feel really good about week 18. I, I don't think New England has a shot in hell at beating us here in Miami. But this is the rough one. Mm-hmm. They got to go to Tennessee on the road. The weather's not going to be ideal, I would say. And this is a test. This is a real test. I think this is the best team they've played since they played Buffalo on Halloween. Well, so next week versus the spread, the Dolphins are three and a half point underdogs to the Titans. Do you think that that's fair and do you agree with the margin? I think that's about right. You know, I think three and a half, it'll probably get bet down to three as, you know, as because today the the COVID list came out, but they're going to relax some of those rules. I don't know if you saw Adam Schefter report that they're going to start relaxing some of those rules. So Dolphins came out and. You know, it was like a who's who of our of backup defensive ends and backup safeties. Although we we did have one starter in there, Brandon Jones, uh, mm-hmm. our strong safety. So you know, we'll see how that shakes out. You know, not too long ago, I, I was like, I love how everybody was making all these excuses for for New Orleans, but you know, if Taysom Hill had played that game, we would have killed him, too. Oh, that's just the eight sacks. That Ian, that. I mean, you it wouldn't be the eight sacks that you guys put up on Ian Book, but it would have been five. <laughs> it would have been four to five. I mean, and the worst part is Taysom Hill's the guy who it, also for what very little offense Ian Book gave them. I don't know how. I don't know how much better of a passer Taysom Hill is. You look at his numbers. It, where, where he does is he sucks. He does a lot underneath. He does a lot of you know stuff for a defense where he he's a threat to run, so you have to drop down in the box. And then he can do some stuff where if your linebackers are out of position, he can catch a tight end or he can catch a wide receiver on a cross. He's not throwing 15-yard outs with authority and accuracy. And with the cornerback group you guys have, I just don't... I, I don't want to hear any of the bullshit about how they would have done better if. I don't think you would have. I still think that just watching the way that game played out, the Dolphins still win that game. It would have been tight. I think it would have required more field goals. I mean, (laughs) Sean Payton icing her kicker was just... (laughs) I was like, see, he's a crusty old man. What made it worse was that he ices them. He ices him from 59 yards, and I hate when this happens. He ices him, and then he kicks it anyway, and he made it from 59 yards. Mm-hmm. So you wasted the one that you were going to make. And then, of course, they try the, the next one, and he has leg for like 75 yards, but he misses it to the right, which has been a thing with Jason Sanders this year. So, yeah, that was also not a you know not our finest moment. Interesting, Chris. So uh, they – had a holder last year in Miami who Jason Sanders kind of rode to a career season, and then he leaves, and all of a sudden there's inac- like there's accuracy questions, and it seems to be a consistent thing. 
Chris, is there any chance that the holder has an impact on that, do you think? I think it does, but, you know, if you're talking Matt Hawk, I mean, how good are his punting skills? Well, yeah, I can see why the Miami wasn't interested in bringing him back. Either. <laughs> it's the reason we have the Scottish hammer right now. I think this team realized, hey, guess yeah, what? That was a that was a thing yesterday, too. Uh, Pilardi to start the season, everybody's like, why did we get rid of Matt Hawk? And then, well, now you're starting to see why we got rid of Matt Hawk these last few weeks. Pilardi's been absolutely great. But, yeah, his hold his hold on that 59-yard, if you saw it, that was not a good hold. Yep. Like, he he didn't set it right for, for Jason Sanders. And I, it has to be that. Because Jason Sanders has been so much, so money since he got here. One of the best kickers in football. And all of a sudden this year, he's completely unreliable. Well, I mean, Bass has been better. I mean, Chris, would you say that Bass has been more consistent yeah. since Hawk has been here this year? Yeah. But the problem is, as a punter, he's nothing special. And right now, we brought in, we've signed a practice squad punter, uh, the Scottish Hammer. He's back there waiting, waiting in the wings with a ton of leg, just itching for a chance to to go out there and punt the ball. I think as long as Hawk continues to hold well, we'll probably ride with him, and maybe this is just a COVID insurance thing. But it's interesting just seeing how little nuances of the game change when you make such a small roster adjustment like that. You know, the average fan doesn't and think my punter matters, and then all of a sudden it's robbing you of three points, six points, nine points a game. Yeah, I never understood when this started, but maybe I'm dating myself here. But I remember the date when the day when – the holder was always the backup quarterback. Remember that? Oh yeah. No, no. I remember. I remember there being a day when this when the holder was your starting quarterback because uh, that's what landed yeah. Tony Romo in everybody's doghouse. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> God, what a debacle! Yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, it's it's probably holder related, but hey, we're gonna have to make do because Pilardi's punting pretty well, so. Jason Sanders is going to have to get over it, go see a psychologist or whatever. But, you know, he's going to have to make some important kicks here coming up. Well, I'll tell you what, you guys better make them because your game this weekend, as we're going to talk about a little bit later in the show, is incredibly important to the Buffalo Bills as it relates to our standing. Now, God, where can we find all of your coverage up to and after this pivotal matchup with the Titans? Uh, you can check out our, our Twitter account. It's the number three yards per carry. Uh, you could get our podcast wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, iTunes, wherever. Um, you want to follow me? It's Alf underscore Artiaga. And so that brings us to the New England Patriots, who lost to the Buffalo Bills 33-21, to and here to talk to us all about it. Mr. Mike DeBate, how are you? I'm doing well, gentlemen. Uh, happy holidays to both of you. Hope you had a, a great holiday. I know you had a great weekend. Uh, <laughs> I assume everyone, uh, the fan base up there in Western New York, all had a great weekend. Uh, you're in New England, not as much, but uh, that only invigorates your fan base even more. From the messages I've gotten the last few days, uh, it's an era of good feelings up in Buffalo. Enjoy it, Jens. <laughs> oh, now listen. We're all we're all living a little high on the hog. Okay, we all are, and it's it's a good place to be. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to act like it doesn't feel good to be back on top of the AFC East in a year where it almost felt like it was preordained that we were going to hold this spot. 
I think there's a little bit more gratification that gets taken from the way that we landed here. The way that game went, and I think a little bit more for our listeners who are as petty as we are. (laughs) WEI was gold. Like, to quote Kenny Banya, it was gold, Jerry. Gold! And I was plugged into WEEI all of Monday morning. And I actually went back to listen to some of it on demand a second time. Just because I, I was I was having a field day with all of the negative energy coming out of Foxborough. We have this call that's since gone viral. We want to play it. This was a caller to the what show, Chris? It's the Greg Hill show on WEEI. Listen. The Patriots, the, the, the rookie wall, there's no such thing as a rookie wall with this kid. He's got a rag arm. He couldn't throw in that windstorm. The other guy threw the ball all over the park. And then yesterday proved it. Receivers, no receivers. Skill players, no skill receivers. The kid playing quarterback ain't our future. The future of the NFL is over in Buffalo. That guy, six foot four, 230, runs right by you, throws it 90 yards, and the other thing I want to say is, Belichick hasn't won butt-kiss without Tom Brady. So to, to be overinflated on this Bill Belichick, great defense, let's run the ball. Yeah, Bill Parcells did that back in the 80s. So that, is that where we're going here with this team? Come on, it's over. AFC goes through Buffalo for 20 years, not us. It's over. Mike, was that one of your relatives? <laughs> I gotta be honest, it sounds like a little bit of a Rhode Island accent there. I'm not so much picking up the Massachusetts Boston vibe. That's a little more, uh, it's a little more south. Um, uh, no, that was not one of my relatives. Uh, one of my relatives would, uh, probably, I'd say, have more than six brain cells. Uh, but that's, you know, it, it is what it is. So what I took away from that, besides the fact that quarterback gets spelled with a W and that six foot five, is apparently a unit of measurement that we're using here in the United yep. States. Um, and, and the fact that Park, Pock, P-A-A-A-A-H-K. My it, favorite is arm, A-H-M, arm. <laughs> it, this game did, I think, a lot of detriment to the Foxborough faithful in terms of the confidence <laughs> in which... There, there was a swagger building in Foxborough after that Monday Night Football loss by the Buffalo Bills to the New England Patriots. The national media jumped on that because that's what they do, right? They all jump bandwagons Absolutely. because they have no allegiance. Everybody was on your side. There, there's a photo, a screenshot of Rex Ryan smiling like an idiot as he was the only Sunday morning ESPN analyst to pick the Buffalo Bills to beat you guys. And... In retrospect, that picture's hilarious because he was right. Of all people, that guy picked the winning horse. But to see the way it happened and to just know the finer details of it, I can see where some of the demoralization for the Patriots fan base might come from. Being on that side of the fence, first of all, what can you tell us about the fallout of this in terms of your fan base's emotions towards the team? Well, the casuals are going to have the fallout. They're going to be like what you just heard, although they're going to be slightly better than that. I do have my doubts about the authenticity of yes. that as well. I mean, that's a, but there are definitely people that share those sentiments. And whether, you know, the accent is over the top or whether the sentiments are over the top, there are a lot of people that share similar viewpoints uh, coming away from that. Uh, you know, waving the Mac Jones pom-poms just a couple of weeks ago, and now all of a sudden 
you're ready to kick the kid to the curb and say, oh, you know, there's no way the Patriots are ever going to win with him. Um, virtue lies in the middle, and it always has. And I think that for the more informed fan, uh, the fan that has a long-term goal or a long-term vision of what this team can become under Mac Jones and with the right pieces around him, which I do believe he's got several of those right now, they know that the, the future here in New England is relatively bright, uh, you know, in terms of what this team can do on the field. Now, Part of that is the brightness of the future of the Buffalo Bills. So as long as that team is stout on both sides of the ball the way they are right now, it's going to make the Patriots road that much more difficult. And the Miami Dolphins, who a lot of people were leaving for dead just a couple of weeks ago, they're back in the mix. They're proving that they're, once again, a formidable force. You're looking at three teams right now in the AFC East that can really for a good long time and saying they're going to be ready. They definitely weren't this year. Not saying they're even going to be ready next year, but Robert Sala is moving that team in the right direction. So you're looking at the makings of divisional dogfights each and every year with teams that are capable of playing at a high level for the Patriots fans that get that and understand it they're looking forward to the future they're being I think maybe a little bit more realistic about the present but they're also looking forward to the future but you know the the, the moon bats are just they're going to go in the opposite direction they're either going to be all negative or they're going to continue to wear the Belichickian hoodie footy pajamas to bed every night and say you know what that's it uh, no matter what uh, you know in Bill we trust and we're still going to win we're still going to go to the Super Bowl there are still a <laughs> lot of fans in New England that are believing that so you know, it's it's just it's it's all relative. If you're a fan, you have the right to cheer or boo or do whatever you want to do. But try to have a temper and approach when it comes to your realistic thoughts of what this team can do and their ceiling. And right now, I think the New England Patriots fans were knocked down a peg, uh, you know, seeing just how good the Buffalo Bills really are on both sides of the ball. Well, and, and I think it's most important to remember that we were kind of really undergunned, both in the offensive line and at the skill positions from what we could have been. <laughs> And so any potential rematch coming down the road where people go, well, we're ready for this and we're ready for that. Kind of the way we didn't get to see your passing attack the first time around, you didn't get to see ours. And it almost seems like it Mm -hmm. worked out to your team's detriment because when we were able to unleash what this offense is really capable of, the Patriots Mm -hmm. defense didn't have many answers. Now, when when I look at the signal caller across from him, let's start with Mac Jones. Rookie quarterback, he's going to have some struggles when their downfield weapons aren't great. I mean, Nikhil Harry probably had one of the ugliest games for a pass wide receiver I've mm-hmm. seen in. I, I'm telling you, first of all, when you guys drafted Nikhil Harry, I was mad. I was mad because I was like, how did we let this happen? They just drafted a Gronk replacement and we let it happen. This is a wide receiver who can stretch the field, who's big, who's physical. He can do underneath stuff and run after the catch. It's going to be a mess. He's been one of the worst wide receivers, I think, in the I I venture to say in the division all season. And very few people would fight me on that. Drops, miscues in his routes. He even assisted in one of the interceptions that Matt got charged with because he thought he was playing volleyball. He popped the he helped pop the ball up so that Micah Hyde could pick it off. I just what do you think of the skill position group? I mean, because the Bills did a great job covering all twenty four million dollars of your tight ends. Nikhil Harry yep. didn't help. At the skill position, what are the Patriots at this point? 
Well, I think you get the nail on the head in terms of being able, if you can shut down what really equates to being the bread and butter of the Patriots passing attack, which is the two tight end sets, then you're going to give them difficulty. And look, the Patriots were without, for all intents and purposes, their number one target when it comes to wide receivers, and that's Kendrick Bourne. I know people are going to say, yeah, he was in the lineup. He cleared protocol. He should have been going. He mispracticed all week long, and there wasn't a situation where he was at 100%. So Bourne being less than that naturally is end up going to it's going to weaken your wide receiving core jacoby myers is a yards eater but even jacoby had a rough game on um, on sunday and then you look at what harry has become and look i've been called a Nikhil harry apologist i've been called an idiot for uh you know, for <laughs> having blind faith in uh in Nikhil harry especially on locked on patriots anybody that's listened knows that i've continued to sing its praises routinely over the course of the last couple of years but there comes a time when you have to put it together and be more than an effective run blocking receiver and just harry is just not fitting into the scheme here he's not fitting into the role that i think the patriots envision him to play uh, it's just, I think at this point, you really have to cut your losses, look at it and say, it's a bad fit. I still think there is a very good NFL wide receiver in Nikhil Harry, and I think he can be effective in this league. Uh, dare I say, I think he will be. I just think at this point, it's becoming painfully obvious that it's not going to be in New England. So if you're the Patriots, you have to try to add to that wide receiver core a little bit. Give Mac a couple of weapons, a couple of people that are going to be able to help him out. Not necessarily the big over-the-top threat. I know the fan base in New England wants the home run hitter. They want the Odell Beckham. They want the Stephon Diggs. They want those guys that are going to be those uh, type of receivers that are going to light up the scoreboard and they're going to you know, light up the highlight reel. But what you need is effective receivers, guys that can make catches in short yardage, make things happen with the ball in their hands. Yards after the catch is huge in a Josh McDaniel setting. And if Josh is going to hang around and be the offensive coordinator here for the next couple of years, you need wide receivers that can fit into that system. Kendrick Bourne is a good start, but more is needed. No, for sure. So I guess when I look at this and I say to myself, okay, so the Bills were pretty, pretty handily shut down your tight ends. Took away Nikhil Harry. Jacoby Myers didn't have a great game. When you look at that and you say, okay, this skill position group on its face probably going up against Buffalo's defense, which has been for years has been one of the better pass defense units in the NFL, and seeing how the game skewed so heavily towards him passing the ball, how much of the criticism should fall on the coaching staff instead of Mac Jones, considering that A good amount. we know his limitations – and yet we boxed them into a position where we were like, listen, keep keep relying on your run if you want to. It's working or throw the ball or throw it to yeah. your own detriment. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And actually, that was a question that was asked to Josh McDaniels quite a bit when the media spoke with him earlier today. And we kept, you know, harping on that point. And, you know, to Josh's credit, he answered it. He answered it very, uh, very honestly and said that it's on him to be able to scheme up and call, uh, you know, games, call 
plays, uh, design situations that make Mac a little more comfortable. Uh, he kind of took exception to some of the uh, narrative out there that Mac is hitting the rookie wall or that uh, he's been exposed uh, for being a very mediocre quarterback with a very low ceiling. Uh, I think those things are madly inaccurate. But, you know, in terms of hitting that rookie wall, I mean, you're going to have games like that when you're a rookie quarterback. And Patriots fans had to remember that some of the success that Mac had early on, I think, worked to his detriment when it came to his reputation. You mentioned this earlier in terms of the national media hopping on Mac right away and really, I think, elevating him to a level that maybe we all uh, put him a little bit more on a pedestal than need be. And that's no knock to Mac. That's not to say that he didn't deserve the accolades he was getting. But at the same time, you have to be very cautious in elevating someone to that level that early in his career. So, um, yeah, and in a lot of respects, I look at what Josh did in terms of being able to scheme up. Uh, it really is a mystery to me as to why jo uh, John Smith is not utilized a little bit more, even if the coverage on the tight ends, and it was great with the, uh, the Buffalo safety group, you can design jet sweeps uh, opportunities for him to be able to carry the ball out of the backfield. Short, crisp passes that could have gotten Mac maybe a little bit more on track if you mix in one of those uh, you know, routes for Janu and allow him to carry the ball for about 10 yards after the catch. Those types of plays can really spark an offense. You're not seeing that in New England. And, yeah, I agree with you. I think it definitely has to fall on the coaching staff a little bit, maybe take some of the pressure off of Mac at this point. Janu Smith used to be a yards-after-the-catch monster. It's the reason that he was fantasy-relevant. It's the reason that he signed the big contract that he did. And so it's just weird to see that dynamic gone from his game in this scheme and the way that they've chosen to use him. I just, mm -hmm. I, I fail, I, I don't believe that a player just loses their fastball <laughs> because they change cities and quarterbacks. I think that that guy still has the talent there. It's on your staff to find a way to get it out of him. And if they could, <laughs> then you've got a great one-two punch at tight end. It's just, it's just missing right now. And Chris has a hilarious joke that we're not going to tell at this point in time. I mean, Chris, it might be one of the funniest jokes you've ever impromptu made on a podcast before. I don't know what one you're talking about. We'll tell Debate about John o. Smith and the fact that he's not oh, producing. Yeah. yeah, we'll tell him off air. Because, <laughs> hey, listen, we're all, we're all not out here trying to get canceled. But the frustration in the aftermath of this game is not new over Bill Belichick. I've heard similar things when he's lost to people in the past. The Patriots fan base, I think 20 years of winning does something to you. I think it makes you a little fickle. I think it makes you almost, oh, what's, what's the term I'm looking for, Chris? Like when you, when you feel like something's uh, supposed to be given to you, you feel entitled. You feel entitled to have a good football team because Bill Belichick is your coach. There was something in the aftermath of this that stuck out to me like a sore thumb. It's that the photos, when you look at them, it's not Sean McDermott going over and hugging uh, Bill Belichick and having a heart-to-heart -heart moment and having a close conversation after the game, after a hard-fought victory to win the division and wrestle it back from your competition. It was Josh Allen. It was our quarterback who Bill Belichick made a point to seek out and talk to. Now, Bill Belichick is a guy that we know has stormed off the field at times when he's frustrated because this is the thing I, I, I wish people could understand the way you do having covered the team being a fan of the team Bill Belichick loves football more than anything else in the world he has a son on the staff he's 
divorced. <laughs> I've read his personal, like, I've, I've, I know everything about him because I hate him. <laughs> so, I, so you don't even know. Keep your uh, friends close, your enemies closer. He loves the game of football to a fault. And he loves anybody else who loves the game of football to a fault. And so when I see him not seeking out our head coach to congratulate him on, hey, you bested me again, whatever. I mean, he's got a seven and three record against Sean McDermott. And yet the person he sought out after the game to go congratulate and have a a conversation with was Josh Allen. I just, I don't know. I feel like a guy, not only does he still love this game and does he still have an acumen for it, but I feel like a lot of your fan base's vitriol towards him because of this. What I mean, Josh Allen, think about it. He has that 7-3 and three record against our head coach because we didn't have a Josh Allen. We got one, and all of a sudden we started winning. <laughs> we started beating you guys <laughs> because we got this guy. So it... I guess it makes a little bit of sense to me that he would seek him out rather than our coach, but what does it tell you about him? And what, I guess if you were to say anything about why he's taking so much heat from your fan base right now, like where, where, where are your thoughts on that? Well, again, and I think you hit the nail on the head. There's a sense of entitlement amongst a lot of the fan base that believe that because Bill Belichick is there, that there is automatically a 10 win playoff bound, uh, deep into the playoff type of expectation for every season. And when he doesn't have it, the automatic reaction to that, and it's driven by a lot of the terrestrial radio that happens in this area in New England, automatically that, well, we're going to attack Bill. We're going to go right after Bill. Bill's the reason. Bill the GM is screwing Bill the coach. We hear this all the time. That's something that they'll go after. Bill is sullen when it comes to the media sometimes. Sometimes he can be surly. I mean, you saw the other night, you know, he answered the question about, uh, you know, New Year's resolutions, which, you know, guys, don't poke the bear. For future reference, anyone that might be listening to this podcast, if you have aspirations in journalism, don't poke the bear after a loss like that. But, all right, that's my soapbox. I'll digress. (laughs) But in any case, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways what you see from the fan base is frustration because – that seven-game win streak awoken the fan base. It, it, it woke the sleeping giant when it came to what the New England Patriots fan base was. And Buffalo Bills fans will know this as well as anyone. That, like you said, that swagger was starting to come back. What I think this win did, or this win for the Bills, I should say this loss did for New England, was kind of bring everyone back to reality a little bit. That this is still a team coming off of a 7-9 and nine season with a rookie quarterback that wasn't expected to be a Super Bowl contender. No one thought after the Patriots lost to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers back in October that we might be watching a Super Bowl preview. Everyone just assumed this may be the last game Tom Brady ever plays against the New England Patriots. Then all of a sudden, they start winning, and you start hearing that chatter again. Oh, Bill's going to have these guys back. Wouldn't it be Bill versus Brady? You see it everywhere on the national Twitter feeds, uh, the picture of Bill, the picture of Tom. This is what it's coming to. This is what we want to see. I think in a lot of ways, what we're looking at now is maybe what the Patriots are, a team that has made vast improvement, a team that will continue to improve, but are probably a little bit of a cut below where the Buffalo Bills, the Kansas City Chiefs, I'd throw the Indianapolis Colts into that mix, the Tennessee Titans. These are probably the teams that are the, uh, the, the gems of the AFC right now. So, 
in a lot of ways, I think people are taking that out on Bill. Bill is also an easy target for some of the fans. There's still some resentment about the way Tom left, and a lot of the fan base tends to blame Bill for that, so he'll get the vitriol there. But I think it's just because he's the most high-profile right now, people are giving Mac the benefit of the doubt because he's a rookie. Bill's just the easy target at this point. Why are the Patriots losing? Point the finger. He's the reason why go after the head coach because, really, you can't go after anyone else in this circumstance. Whereas if the Patriots had this two-game skid and Tom Brady was still the quarterback here, I can guarantee you in this area, Bill would be getting a lot of the slack, but Tom would be getting it just as much. See, Chris, wouldn't it be nice to have those problems, though? Sure. (laughs) I would love to have the problems that you guys have. You know, we're so entitled after this decade of two decades of domination that we're going to start launching vitriol at people who don't deserve it. Good Lord. (laughs) Here's what I know. You guys have a game coming up against the Jaguars where you might be. Chris, is 15 and a half one of the biggest lines you've heard of in the NFL? Probably since uh, Buffalo and Jacksonville. You guys are 15 and a half point favorites as of today over the Jacksonville Jaguars next week. Do you agree with that assessment of the line? And how do you think the Jag- the, the Bills, Jesus Christ, the Bills, the Patriots are going to fare in this one against the Jaguars? Uh, I don't agree with the line. Uh, I think the uh, the line is way too big. I think when you look at what the Patriots have done the last couple of weeks, when you look at the fact that the Jaguars are playing for nothing but pride at this point, and they would love to spoil the season of the New England Patriots, they've got the albatross of the situation with Urban Meyer off of their back. They're playing extremely loose. So on that basis, gentlemen, anything can happen on any given Sunday. That being said, If the Patriots do drop a game to the Jacksonville Jaguars, they don't belong sniffing the playoffs, let alone getting into the playoffs. That's not something a team that is peaking at the right time does at this point in the season. I'm not going to point out that the Bills did lose to the Jaguars. I know a lot of Patriots fans are doing that, but it's a different (laughs) circumstance. It's a different time. and. The Bills have righted the ship since then. They've corrected the issues that they need to. They're playing their best football heading into the playoffs, whereas if you're losing games to lowly teams in January, late December, early January, then there's something wrong, and you're not going to advance. You're not going to make that leap. I I do believe the Patriots come in. I think this is a get-right game for them. Uh, My main concern is going to be down in Miami, which is truly a house of horrors for New England at this time of year. But I do look for them to take care of business. But I think a 15-point uh, margin is is a little bit too big. I actually think it's going to be closer than that 15-point margin. Patriots should take it, but I do think it's going to be a little bit closer than that because the Patriots are still finding ways to get themselves right. As always, you are a consummate professional. I love the fact that you join hacks like us who like to throw barbs. We like to break balls. And yet you you navigate those waters just as well as you do the things over in Lockdown Patriots. Tell everybody where they can find you on social and what you have coming up this week in Lockdown Patriots land. Well, you can always find me each and every day on the Bird app, as my good friend Mark Schofield would say, at M-D-A-V-A-T-E-N-F-L. You can catch all my written work this week, a lot of Pat's Bills breakdowns, still a lot of Bills content as we sift through the debacle for the New England Patriots that was last Sunday. So if you're interested in Bills content, still a lot on there on Patriot Maven of Sports Illustrated. And, of course, each and every day on the airwaves, Locked On Patriots, free and available wherever you get your podcasts. Scott Mason, Alfa Arteaga, Mike Tabakte, covering the AFC East. 
Like only they know how. Kind of like the they're like the job squad of the AFC East. That, that's not a thing. You couldn't. Have, what, what was the job squad? It was uh, Al Snow. With the dude with the mannequin head. Yeah. Al, oh Jesus. Al Snow. Two Cold Scorpio and someone else. All it was it was what is Two Cold Scorpio. Wait, what? Two Cold Scorpio. That was a wrestler. All it was was a. Um, this was just a faction of jobbers. Is <laughs> what it was. Job squad. Jobbers. Job squad. That's I how that works. I feel like that's insulting to our guests. Well, I mean, sure. <laughs> he said sure. I mean, we're on top. We get to hey. What if, if we learned nothing else from Talladega Nights? We're winners, and winners get to do what they want. And that might be disparage some of your podcast guests. <laughs> oh, the Bills took back the AFC East in their 33-21 victory over the New England Patriots. <sighs> when you take a look at the playoff forecast, today, the Bills would play Indy. Which, Chris, I think we can both agree is kind of a terrible matchup for Buffalo compared to the rest of the playoff field. Yeah, I'd rather not see Jonathan Taylor again. Yeah, not ever. No, I mean, no, literally, I mean, like, not ever. Like, we might have to saving Silverman him if it comes down to it. It wouldn't be, although I feel like. It wouldn't be saving Silverman, that would be Celtic Pride. True. Although I feel like, unlike Celtic Pride with Damon Wayans in it, I feel like Jonathan Taylor would just beat both of us up. <laughs> I don't know. You you can be very threatening. Yeah, but that guy, like, yeah, just like I thought I can make tackles. And then I got hit by a, a third stringer from Mississippi State University, and it literally, like, it, it ruined my life. That shot, like, it, it changed my frame of reference for what violence was. Because my whole body hurt to the soles of my feet. <laughs> yeah, I think either one, either one can work because there's both uh, involved using a utility truck to <laughs> capture the person. <laughs> either way, AFC North teams are the, really when you look at the landscape, they're the only ones with any real volatility in the standings. Considering that all four teams could conceivably still have a road to winning the division, the Bengals could win out, Cleveland could win out, and the Bengals lose this weekend. Baltimore could win out and have Cincy and Cleveland lose, and they could win it. And then the Steelers. Like, the Steelers are still floating around and being relevant, which is shock. Although, Chris, are they really relevant after that just absolute thrashing? No, but Mike Tomlin's a pretty good coach. Uh, I believe uh, never below 500 as a never below 500 as a head coach. That's if he impre- finishes, that's impressive. If he finishes 8-8-1, eight, eight, and one, do we still consider him to hold that? I feel like you do, right? What's your win percentage if you're eight, eight, and one? I don't know. Call in if you know. Probably five hundred. Probably five hundred. Which would be five hundred and above. Yeah. Goddamn. Then you've got Cincy playing Kansas City and Cleveland. I don't know. Doesn't it seem more probable than not that they're going to lose one of those games? Yeah. Cincy's been a weird team this season. I mean, it's going to take me a second here to pull up their numbers, but. When you look at the Bengals, Bengals... They have two 1,000-yard receivers, a 1,000-yard rusher, and I think Burrow has thrown for over 4,000 yards, which is the first time that's ever happened in football history. Sure. 
And that's all wonderful, right? Like, okay, yep, 4,100 yards for Burrow. Joe Mixon, 1,159 yards rushing, and he throws in another almost 300 receiving. How many uh, women hit does he have on his stat line? (laughs) So far, none, but the season isn't over. But when I look at what their team's been over the last few weeks, you go, wait a minute. So when I hear... All these receivers, all this success on offense. Chris, they should be winning games, right? Yeah. Well, they, they've, they're they on a two-game winning streak. They scored 15 points against the Denver Broncos. They scored 23-22 in losses to the 49ers and the Chargers, neither of whom are even in their respective playoff brackets. So is this a good football team? I don't know. I think their offense can be hit or miss. I think their offense can be derailed. And I think that their defense is somewhat suspect. And it brings us back to this question of, are they good? I mean, the Cleveland Browns. Chris, if I asked you if the Browns were good, what would you say? No. Okay. The Browns beat the Cincinnati Bengals 41-16. to <laughs> Like this. Yeah, and the Bengals have blown out Baltimore twice. Yeah, so it's just, uh, well... So, so no. I wouldn't mind seeing Cincinnati in the playoffs because I believe that that would be, assuming that there's no inclement weather in Cincinnati or Buffalo. Basically. I'd take a little inclement weather. Because but it, their whole offensive production is passing the football. So is ours. Yeah, but But who they have you, a better so, running back with Mixon. So who would you trust? Josh Allen or, or Joe Mixon and Joe Burrow? I would trust us because we have more experience in the playoffs than Cincinnati does with I all those Josh guys. I trust Josh Allen because it seems like he'll kill anybody who gets in his way. He'll murder you if and we, your family. If we line up with Cincinnati in the playoffs, I think that would be like a 31-27 type of high-scoring game. Unfortunately, the way everything lays out, <sighs> there's a lot of volatility in who we could see. I mean, I've seen scenarios where we play the Dolphins. You know, we get as high as the two seed and we play Miami. I see us play. I've seen an op, different simulations where we play the Raiders, the Patriots. The Indi- so the- before Sunday, I saw a, a thing that said that we were fifty-one percent to finish as the three seed. Yeah, yeah. I and and that's fair because you look at how tough Cincy's schedule is. So then, what you do is. You look at where that volatility in the AFC North lands us. Tennessee, unless Miami can pull off a miracle this weekend, their odds of landing that two seed with their tiebreaker over us is pretty hefty, right? Like 95% to win their division, and they'll finish as the highest non-division winning seed thanks to their win over New England, that is Indy. Indy's going to finish as the five seed almost for sure. At this point, everyone's laughing because they're like, oh, Carson Wentz went on the COVID list. Yeah. Carson Wentz threw for 59 yards. <laughs> he threw for 59 yards against the Patriots, and they won that game. I still think this team has some balls. I don't know. I just, I, I take a look at where we want to end up. Now, Chris, I guess the question is, do you want to be the highest seed? Matchups, we've talked about this, matchups are going to be more important than seeding. But now that you see that, like, the Raiders could creep into a low seed, that because the Ravens just continue to plummet, 
They don't have easy games in front of them. Then you don't know if Lamar Jackson's coming back. You don't know if he's coming back. Even if he is, what is that football team at this point? They weren't. They're, they're Plus, they don't have all their injuries. They lost their top two cornerbacks. Yeah, they're, they're beat up right now. And they essentially have to win out to try to have a shot at making the playoffs. It's Indianap- what- Indianapolis is the only team I don't want to see. Yeah, so with that in mind, there's a bunch of different options. But if getting to the highest seed is what you care about, now, because here's the thing, it used to be, oh, well, even the seventh seed could be dangerous. Well, now you're seeing teams like the Raiders. Are you scared of the Raiders this year? No. Are you scared of the Dolphins this year? No. Are you decimated twice? No. I, I think getting as high in the bracket now as you can is really what matters, and you just roll the dice and hope whoever ends up matching up with you is a good fit for your team. So with that, here's your Week 17 rooting interests. First of all, the Rams over Baltimore. It's going to be incredibly interesting watch once I get home from the stadium on Sunday. Because if the Bills win and the Ravens lose, the Bills will have officially clinched a playoff spot in 2021. No one can take that away from us. It would take more than that to ensure a home playoff game, but knowing our tickets punched is a pretty good feeling, right? Yes. I think we'd all just enjoy it a bit, and it also removes a team that I'd hate to see in the postseason from contention with Baltimore. Like, it gets them that further away from making the postseason. Jacksonville over New England. It's not an outcome that's probably going to happen, but a New England loss and a Buffalo win would clinch the division for Buffalo. Chris, it's funny no one's talked about that outcome. What outcome? The if we win and New England loses, we clinch the division. Well, New England's... I, <laughs> but that's how little faith anyone has in Jacksonville. Look, I trust I trust you to get braces before Jacksonville beating the Patriots. <laughs> this is what I love. Chris, I love the fact that you and I can take shots at each other, and no one takes it personally. No, because I don't care. I already Neither know that I. I, I know that I'm better than you. <laughs> I see you with, with that stupid haircut, and I hear you say the words better than me, and it it genuinely tickles me. Kansas City over Cincinnati. The Bills' path to a better seed in the playoffs will require them to pass Cincy, who has them on tiebreakers right now, because what are they, 4-1 and one in their own division, they have a better AFC record. Kansas City could do us a huge favor by knocking them off. That would give us a direct tiebreaker. Record against common opponents, boom. We beat Kansas City, what'd you do? Miami against Tennessee. The Titans aren't nearly as terrifying without Derrick Henry. And even though A.J. Brown is coming off the game of his life, Chris, it was funny. I was sitting in a garage with Doug Rolowski watching that game with his neighbor, who in a playoff game, in the fantasy football playoffs, didn't start A.J. Brown because he wasn't sure if he would do well. And instead started, uh, what was it? Uh, oh, my God. He had Stephon Diggs, who had a good game, right? Yep. And somebody else. But it doesn't matter because A.J. Brown had a performance for the ages. And watching him agonize over the fact that he was on his bench was hilarious to me. <laughs> I... <laughs> They've been winning by the skin of their teeth in every single one of these games. And given our tiebreakers over Miami and our loss to Tennessee, if they could find a way to derail Tennessee's momentum, 
it could help narrow the gap on better conference seating. Cleveland has to beat Pittsburgh on Monday night. Again, AFC North volatility is good for our seeding, and a Cleveland win paired with a Cincy loss would set up a Week 18 matchup to decide the division winner. It would push them down a rung in the standings to the four seed, and it would also force them to have to really gear up for what would probably be... I mean, Chris, us versus the Jets, is anybody ha- does anybody have any illusions that that's not going to be... Uh, like, that's a game I expect Mitch Trubisky playing by halftime. Yeah, if we get a good enough lead, a three-touchdown lead. I would say three. I'd say 14 points. So you just say, look, this Jets team can't score, not on our defense. You pull some of our key offensive players because ultimately that's what carries the load, and you just try to get out of there. These teams are going to have no choice but to put their entire seasons on the line to go toe-to-toe with each other. If Cleveland can beat Pittsburgh, it's Pittsburgh. Jesus Christ. Pittsburgh, it's going to set off a chain reaction that will essentially require the AFC North to solely focus on this and bring its A game. And the loser, I I see that being a war of attrition in that game. And that bears good things for the Buffalo Bills. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. If we handle our business, Chris, for the next two weeks, we're in the playoffs. We're the AFC's champions. We get to go to a home playoff game. I love the fact that you're going to be at this game. Yeah, it'll be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. Make sure you come out and check out the old boy, Chris Krueger. Make sure you come out and have a drink with us. Make sure you come out and be loud and proud and just smother these scumbags <laughs> from south of the Mason-Dixon. But for tonight, we got to get out of here. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And this has been your AFC's Roundup.